All right, welcome back to Everything EOS, the longest running EOS podcast. I am here with William Quigley, the CEO of World Asset Exchange, also known as WAX. He's also the former uh, co-creator or, uh, of Tether. Uh, and WAX, if you haven't heard of it, you're living in a, in a hole somewhere. Uh, it, it's like the developer paradise right now. So many major applications from the EOS mainnet have been migrating or uh, deploying like a, a separate version of itself to the WAX chain. We saw prospectors, which had, I think, what, like 15,000 daily active users at one point, whenever it first launched. EarnBet, Karma, ITAM made an announcement, the DAP Network. Uh, well, welcome to the show, William. Uh, how you. are you today? Thank, thank you so much. Very good. Very good. Uh, thank you. So, so you're like crypto OG here. So I didn't know until I started doing a little more research. It didn't take me long, but a co-creator of Tether. What, what year was that? Well, uh, Barack and I and Jonathan, my partner, came up with the, the rough concept in 2013. Wow. Uh, 2014, uh, we started to build it. And, uh, and it didn't take that long. We needed something to to build it on, and we had just become big uh, contributors to the uh, to the Mastercoin crowd sale. We we're on the board, and so it's like, hey, this might work, right? Uh, and for your audience, Mastercoin was basically the predecessor to Ethereum. It was the first attempt to to uh, put an intelligent layer on top of a blockchain, and it was my first experience uh dealing with people who weren't always intelligent <laughs> uh, uh a lot of people ask this question uh why would a blockchain need an intelligent layer you know uh so that 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 was an educational exercise in itself but uh the very first use case of mastercoin was uh was tether and it, uh, up until very recently, was only on MasterCoin. Now it's on Ethereum. Uh, I think it might even be on Binance. Not sure. Uh, it's but on it's a bunch of Tron, EOS. It's a, it's a bunch of them now. They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, uh, for anybody who's out there who's an entrepreneur who's uh, like suffered the humiliation of trying to put forth an idea you really think is a fucking smart idea, <laughs> but nobody wants to hear it, that was Tether. And it's always this way. I've been in technology for decades, but, but, but it's always this way. When um, you have a, a, a new idea, and this was the first uh, uh, you know, tokenized asset on a blockchain. We were tokenizing uh, a U.S. dollar. Uh, the, the, uh, the skepticism of why anyone would ever want that was so high. And, and I always kind of marvel when I talk to people about something, like I was the, the first institutional investor in PayPal. Um, PayPal, same sort of phenomenon. Uh, people are like, but why would we ever need that, right? And uh, with, with Tether, uh, pretty much everybody in crypto we talked to, not everybody, but many of them said, uh, but, but the US dollar is already digitized. I can already send a dollar over rails what's the point of wrapping it? It almost seems like a redundancy. And given my experience in digital item trading for you know, 20 years um, uh, prior to crypto, uh, trading what are called virtual items, video gaming items, uh, I, I, it didn't occur to me that most people did not understand why someone might want to send someone else a, a payment or to accept as payment something that's immutable, right? Because most of the people who are saying, why would you use Tether or what's the point of Tether? Uh, they've never run global payment processing businesses. And what's the biggest problem we face? It's fraud, it's, it's mm -hmm. chargebacks. So the notion that you could send somebody a, a digitized form of payment that could never be charged back to me and Brock and Jonathan, that was huge. But you see, if you're not in that business, you'd say, but I can PayPal it or I can use a credit card. And it's like, yeah, buddy, you can do that. But do you understand the fraud associated with those things? It's massive. 
And if, and, if, uh, if they're a crypto business, have, 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 enjoy your banking relationships. If you get a good one, stick with it because like thing. that was at that point, banking m- must have been nearly impossible. So you got to park your money somewhere unless yeah. you want to hold it all in a volatile asset like Bitcoin. So yeah. And, and, and so the impetus for, for Tether was really straightforward. Um, we were trading and the trading was pretty primitive, but uh, about once a day, we would uh, lose our game face and be like, let's get the hell out of these you know, assets. And of course, how would you go to a safe harbor? Well, uh, for those of you who were around at that time, you remember what we called alt exchanges. And alt exchange was an exchange that didn't have fiat uh, uh, deposit or withdrawal capability. In other words, it was pretty much every, every uh, uh, exchange on earth. So mm-hmm. what you would do is you'd go to like a Bitstamp or something that had fiat, you'd send your wire there, and then you would buy BTC, you would take the BTC and transfer it to Poliniex or something. You would then go and trade the BTC for altcoins, do your stuff. Let's say you freak out, you want to get, you're like, oh, you know, <laughs> things are getting volatile. So what do you do? You sell your alts for BTC, you take your BTC, you transfer it to Bitstamp, you uh leave it in Bitstamp uh, and, uh, and sell it for fiat. Now you're in fiat, which is good. Typically, you would then, because you didn't trust keeping your money in Bitstamp, because who is Bitstamp, <laughs> right? I mean, we already know what's happened to Gox. So you say, will you please wire me my money? They wire your money. And two days later, you're like, well, I want to get back in. Wow. So rinse, repeat. Now, along the way, you've also triggered taxable gains. So our theory was, what if you could move on an alt exchange to a stable asset, and then when you are back into risk on mode, sell that asset for, for BTC or some other uh, coin and never leave the alt exchange? I mean, it seemed really simple, right? It mm-hmm. took a year to explain to exchanges and to people why they would want that. And... And it, it, I know it's like we all marvel at how could no one have understood the value of a wheel, right? So even though I'm saying with some like, like exasperation, why did it take so long? I kind of know better at this point in my life. It just does, you know, uh, people couldn't get it. And then of course, what was the number two question people asked, but how do I know I'm going to be able to get cash for this tether? And so here's how I answered that. Uh, You're never going to get cash for your tether. Why would you ever take your tether and try to cash out for for fiat? Man, this token is way better than fiat. You know, it's instantaneous. It's immutable. And I was spot on there. No one ever wanted to cash out. Once once they had tether, and by the way, you could just trade the tether for, for BTC. So we were right about all those things, but it did take some education. Um, th- this year, not just this year, but over the last couple of years with like the growth and mat- mat- maturation of, of DeFi, like there's even less reason to keep money in a bank. I could earn significant yield with very flexible lockups. I, I, I can get like Yes. 6% with no lockup with a three month lockup, like 12% on different things like compound or uh, MakerDAO or uh, I use the crypto.com uh, earn. Like there, there's so many opportunities now that like it wouldn't be possible without stable coins. I mean, not at all. You could earn it uh, yield on, on a token, but you, you want are, dollars are sometimes. Stable coins are the necessary ingredient in DeFi. I mean, that's it. I mean, the very first derivative token was Tether. And uh, it took several years for, for what we now call DeFi to happen, but it eventually did. I would say um, that uh, next to like NFTs, uh, kind of DeFi and NFTs are the two things in the last like three years in crypto that I've been like, you know, great. That's true innovation. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very excited about, about where DeFi can go. Uh, the notion of, on-chain collateralization and then on-chain leverage is oh, wonderful because you're speaking my language yes you 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 can get uh decentralization we're not 
fully decentralized, but we're moving towards what I call the Satoshi future, which is you can really live and operate in a decentralized fashion. So anyway, that's that's the Tether story. And Tether is now the most traded token, including Bitcoin, on Earth. People can talk as much shit as they want on Tether. A lot, I've seen charts from other stable coins. Like, they don't even put Tether on the chart because it just makes them look like little ants. Whenever you know you look at, look at- I was on a Bloomberg uh, radio show, and I said to somebody who said, uh, it was during all the controversy of us, is there the money there and not the money there and all that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well... You know, uh, uh, well, let's do a thought experiment. Uh, does it matter? I mean, do you know if there's any gold in Fort Knox? I don't. But what I do know is a dollar will get me a dollar's worth of goods. I know the world will accept my dollar more than any other thing. In crypto, Tether is the coin of the realm when it comes to stable coins. And by the way, so they were like, well, but what about all this stuff? Isn't that a problem? And I said, what is Tether trading at right now? Uh, $1. Mm-hmm. Yep. It trades at a dollar. So tell me what the problem is. And they were very exasperated. They're like, but, but, but. I'm like, it, guys, no. but it works. Would I like there to be daily audits of the cash? Would I like the people now running Tether to be more transparent? Of course. But it does work. Without Tether, I don't think where we'd be anywhere close to where we are now. And I think... We're already like years behind where I thought we would be like two years ago at this point. Um, uh-huh. So early adopter of digital goods. You, you mentioned you're, you're doing stuff with Brock b- before even the Tether stuff. So you yeah. were you part of like IGE and like all that Warcraft gold yeah, at that time? I wasn't an operator, but Brock and my other partner, Jonathan, were uh, co-founders of, of uh, IGE, which was a big uh, marketplace for the buying and selling of video game virtual items. I'm a venture capitalist, so I was on the board. And this is where I learned all about uh, the trading of these uh, immutable uh, digital uh, items and the speed at which people like to trade them and the fact that it was global and the fact that it operated in some ways almost as a substitute for currency among certain groups of people around the world. And so it's the reason why when uh, uh, blockchain and crypto came along, of course, like uh, all venture capitalists have what I call scar tissue. We, uh, we, we, we do things, we get burned, and then we say never again. And I had like, looked at like um, what what now we would call like uh, cryptocurrencies, but without the without the uh, uh, the real crypto piece of it, there was in the early days of the internet, there were these internet monies, things like flus and beans. These were um, uh, virtual items that were backed supposedly by some amount of money uh, that were issued by you know single companies, and uh, the whole idea being what we all know about crypto now. Hey, you can do instant and you can do uh, micropayments, which even today is impossible on the internet. And uh, it sounded really cool, but of course, prior to the blockchain, triple ledger, there were problems, right? So blockchain did a marvelous job there. But because of of our trading experience, um, we were were quite aware, me, Brock and, and Jonathan, that people would want to trade virtual items that looked like they could operate as currency. Uh, uh, you know, things like Ethereum and, and intelligent layers weren't there yet. But mm-hmm. it seemed very intriguing to us. We were skeptical in that the technology was really clunky and whatnot. Uh, and there's been a lot of scams in this area around currency on the web. But, but we, were, we were intrigued because of our, of our background. And uh, uh, we knew that people, if it worked and it was convenient enough, people would use it. What we weren't prepared for was the, the incredible resistance in the banking community to helping to work with blockchain companies. Uh, and uh, that, of course, uh, is a whole different podcast about how <laughs> did it come to be that Bitcoin and cryptos became public enemy number one to the U.S. government and to a bunch of other governments and the smear campaign and, and so on. Right. But I've learned whenever I see the U.S. government uh, mention 
uh, drug running, um, uh, money laundering, uh, uh, child porn, anything like that. And they associate that with the technology. I know they don't like this technology. They use all three with Bitcoin, right? So I was like, wow, the full trifecta. Uh, don't touch it. And uh, uh, so banking was, was very, very hard. It still is very difficult uh, to get. I mean, the vast majority of banks in the world don't want to deal with crypto, even though, as your audience knows and we know, that uh, from a KYC, meaning know your customer or, and money laundering perspective, uh, the tools available to you to make sure you're operating within the rules of the law are far better on a blockchain than on the existing stitched together banking network. But uh, uh, educating people about that fact is quite tough. Uh, we're getting better, I would say. Banking isn't as bad as it used to be. But, it, but it's still one of the big problems that uh, crypto faces. I, I, I like what you, you said earlier about like, we'll know like we, we've reached, uh, I guess, where we envisioned it whenever you don't have to cash out. And I think we're at that point. There's several uh, crypto credit cards. Uh, I, I just got one recently. I'm not even going to say which one because I don't want to plug anything. Uh, but I could basically put stable coins in an account and I, I could spend it at any retail. If I want to top it up, it does like an atomic trade in the background. I could sell some EOS or Bitcoin into a stable coin. I, I, I use it at a POS system. I do not need to ever do an ACH withdraw to my, my checking account. As long as I have enough money in my checking account to, to do um, my billing that requires an ACH, such as like my mortgage, uh, then yeah, I have to use my bank account. But all of my daily spending is all being done from a, a crypto.com credit card. I'll just say, it. Um, and I, I'm able to earn on my stable coins. The the DeFi aspect. Oh, wow. I mean, it's more like CFI in this instance. But um, I'm able to lend out my stable coins with flexible lockup times. So it's essentially acting as a savings account and a spending account all in one. I don't have to cash out those stable coins. Yeah. And so Brock and me and Jonathan uh, uh, created the first uh, crypto debit card uh, in 2014. We called it uh, Blade. And uh, we had deals with all the major exchanges for them to offer it. So you deposit your crypto into an account like you're talking now, and then you could spend that. I think we had it was MasterCard. Uh, network, we would sell the crypto as you uh, process the transaction, send the dollar amounts to the merchants. And um, this is an example of something we were talking about earlier before our, uh, our interview here with, um, with timing. Uh, like we were, we were early and uh, people were figuring out how to even what a crypto is. And, uh, you know, we, we like for three years, we had a little team trying to do something, but it was uh, to no avail. And I eventually said, look, like timing isn't right. 2020, I think the timing is probably about right. And uh, I'm seeing some of these cards, you know, in 2017, I think uh, there was an ICO for a company called 10X. 10X mm -hmm. was uh, They're another debit card company. So I remember. we spent about $500,000 to come up with the concept of a crypto debit card, to get a deal with MasterCard, to uh, get some biz dev relationships with five exchanges, and to fully develop the product. We spent 500 grand. Now, 10X raised $80 million to do that in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I still don't think they've released the card. And I still don't think they've released it, exactly. So. It's, it's silly, right? Uh, 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 one of the nice things about blockchain technology, because it's open source, uh, at least for now, uh, is uh, you can take these building blocks, and if you're creative, you can stitch together stuff very effectively, right? Now, one of the things we've talked about is how it's, it's, it works, but it's clunky. And uh, I have a phrase I always use with my team, which is that consumers pray to the God of convenience. That means when they have a choice between a okay so-so solution that's super easy or a really wonderful solution that's hard, they'll always take the crappy easy solution. And that is, um, 
that is the biggest, I think, stumbling block to, to crypto adoption. It is just not easy. It's not easy on any freaking level from acquiring it to holding, you know, storing it securely to participating in the community if you want to be active in the in the governance. Like everything about crypto is hard. And, and, and we have a lot more work to do. When, when you talk to people outside of crypto, it's like you're speaking another language. Like that, that's your signal that like we got a long way to go still. As um, we all know, if you're at a, uh, we'll call it mixed company dinner, meaning crypto people and non-crypto people, crypto people will talk about crypto uh, 25 hours per day, right? And I've learned to, when I realize there's a mixed crowd, I'm like, okay, let's you gotta turn it down. Away, everybody, let's please not talk about crypto. <laughs> yeah, it, it gets obnoxious, but I love it. I mean, I've been doing it for many years and I still love it. I, I'm getting to the point where like the onboarding for, for these like DeFi apps that, with the collateralized loans and, and getting interest on stable coins, like that could literally be the user onboarding is okay. Instead of like, Two years ago, me telling you, you got to buy this Bitcoin, then buy this shit coin, and then trade that shit coin. Like, that's not it. What you should do is go on Coinbase, buy $1,000 of USD coin, stable, their stable coin. Transfer it to, to whatever app you like and start earning on it. Just, that's it. That, that, that's, that's crypto. That's yeah. DeFi. That, that, that's beautiful. Like, people understand that. It's like, oh, I could earn 6% on my crypto with zero risk. Or I guess there's, there's risk uh, on a C there's always some counterparty risk, but it's, it's, it's getting better. And yeah, yeah. It, it would take a black, I guess it depends on what platform we're talking about. Yeah, it does. And you're right. I mean, uh, uh, it's, uh, I can even catch myself sometimes saying to people, there's no risk, yeah, right? Yeah, I just did like, it. Wait a minute, there's risk with us treasuries. So, mm -hmm. so technically speaking, of course there's risk, but you know, to, um, to crypto people owning the most toxic, uh, subprime mortgage-backed security, that shit looks like AAA rated paper, right? <laughs> so you have to also remember that. Crypto people's tolerance for volatility and risk is off the charts. So uh, I do know when you, when you mention things like DeFi to people who aren't in crypto, they rightly do point out like, oh my God, here are all of the bad things that can happen. And, uh, you know, but how much do you personally worry about Bitcoin getting hacked? I gotta say, I kind of don't. No. <laughs> to me, that's like a non-risk. It's sort of like, is the US government gonna default on its treasury bills? I guess there's a theoretical risk there, but we don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's another sort of tribal element of crypto people, right? There's like things we've, to us, SHA-256 is like, man, you know, that's like, okay, great. But yeah, all right, it, there's, there's always risks. But uh, I think often the, uh, the non-crypto people uh, maybe overemphasize the things that we all know can be fixed from a technical standpoint. I mean, the biggest risk long-term of any of these cryptos is, uh, is fatigue in the holders who are kind of tired from waiting, waiting, waiting for the mass adoption to take hold. I think we talked about this earlier. Everyone always thinks things are going to happen sooner than they do. And I think that's what we're seeing here is this burnout. Everyone, they're ready to weather the bear market, but then things went up. They got optimistic. They maybe even bought more leveraged up. And then whenever it went down further, it's just like, ah, and then like you eventually, like you lose solvency. Some people lose solvency throughout that. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a marathon, man. I know how to play it is uh, you must, you must manage the amount of your total net worth that's exposed to crypto. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got 1%, 5% of your total net worth exposed to crypto, I mean, you shouldn't mm -hmm. like worry about the daily price movements, right? It's just like, what's the long-term likelihood? You've made a decision. You want to hold it. Great. If on the other hand, you got 50% of your net worth. Uh, you know, to me, I'd say that's too much exposure unless you, uh, you know, you just want to go there and you can deal with it. 
Uh, but often this is the problem. People get too exposed. And that's uh, and then that to liquidate. Love the stable coin yield. Like it's it's amazing. No like no risk of volatility and you still earn yield. It's it's like magic. I, I can't keep I know I, 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 I keep I feel like I'm preaching it. There's uh, I would like there to be uh, more capacity for more people to participate in these these DeFi instruments because you know relative to let's say U.S. bondholders or even you know uh, you know people who hold gold, it, there's very little uh, 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 there's very scarce amount of this stuff you can actually get into. Uh, we we uh, I read somewhere where someone thought there'd be a hundred billion dollars worth of DeFi uh, assets, uh, like in a year or two, I, I, I don't see any chance of that happening. But that would be a number where you can start to have uh, bigger institutions participate. Bigger institutions can't put a million, two million, five million into this stuff. You know, they need to direct billions. And uh, we uh, hopefully can figure out a way to allow that to happen. You know, but it, we're not there yet. So I, I think we, we, we had some interesting conversation, but I did want to get into wax. Uh, yeah. So mind-blowing stuff. I didn't realize you had half the history as you do. Uh, you're like a legend, <laughs> so to speak. Um, quiet legend. <laughs> quiet legend. I, I knew about the Tether stuff, though. I will say that. I, I didn't know about the IGE. That's, in, that's super interesting so you went and from I, tether you know, a board member there you got to give credit to brock pierce and jonathan yantis because those guys built that thing up but um, you did but tether I, before I, opskins though so opskins is, is a huge huge company at its peak I, i'm not sure the num i have numbers in front of me i guess you could nod your head if they're accurate still 10 million plus customer accounts a hundred thousand plus users a month $2 million of daily transactions, 200 million plus total purchases. This is uh, Opskins. You want to kind of give like the, the, yeah, the so, elevator pitch so, of what this is? Yeah, so uh, the, uh, uh, and, and the roots of this are really an IGE. So uh, uh, Jonathan Yantis, uh, my and Brock's partner, invented the concept of buying video game virtual items with fiat, you know, with money. And uh, he realized there was a lot of people who wanted to do that. After a few years of building up his business, he teamed up with Brock. And then they were able to combine a lot of different skills that each of them had to build a very big business. And this was during the 2000s when the video game companies outside of the U.S. discovered the wonderful business model of selling virtual items, as opposed to asking people to pay once for the game and you know that's it. So uh, it took U.S. people about ten years to incorporate that into their video games, but but in in Asia it was it was very popular fast. And so, um, but there was a there was a uh, I wouldn't call it a flaw, but there was a there was a ceiling on how big the market could be, and the ceiling was based on one thing, and that's this. Virtual items had been um, uh, based on in-game utility. You have a virtual item, it allows you to do a thing in a game. And to me, that meant there would be a natural limit to how big the market could be because anything consumers buy, where they're buying it for a purpose, a utility, a toaster, uh, a lawnmower, a hairdryer, you need one of them. That's a rule, right? You need one rake, one shovel, whatever. And then it wears out. So that market was about $10 billion globally, the secondary market for trading virtual items. Uh, and then we got into crypto and we sort of were like, all right, we're sort of done with this market. It's like as big as it's going to be. It's steady, eddy, whatever. And then uh, in 2015, uh, I, uh, I started uh, getting exposed to skins. A skin is a virtual item in a game that has no purpose uh, in game. It is strictly cosmetic. And I saw that and I said to my partner, uh, Jonathan, holy shit, guess what? 
virtual items are now going to go to the freaking sky because cosmetic things we have an unlimited capacity to buy ask any woman how many shoes she has <laughs> i was just about to say that how many t-shirts does a guy have right how many different pants well i mean those provide a utility you want to be clothed why do i need 15 different t-shirts because we humans like variety we humans like to express ourselves so we figured wow you're going to have a much bigger market. It's, it's worthwhile taking a look at it. But now we've been doing crypto for years. And now we also realize, you know, the one thing we hate about video game virtual items, even if they're skins, is that they're centrally controlled by one video game company. And if the video game company doesn't want, for whatever reason, usually uh, because they don't really fully understand uh, the value of a secondary market, uh, they will limit or restrict your ability to trade. And if they do that, there's no secondary market capability. So we, we thought, wow, what if we could marry these skins in crypto? And, you know, ERC-20s hadn't been invented yet. And so uh, you know, Ethereum hadn't been released yet. But we, uh, we went about to build a new marketplace for trading virtual items and uh, uh, these skins. And then I put on my venture hat and I was like, wait a minute, why are we building this shit? There's probably someone who's already done it. And we came across a guy named uh, John Bacchisi who had started a company called Opskins. And so we approached him. We said, we love what you're doing. Your, your marketplace is really well designed for reasons you might not even appreciate. Here's how we could help. We're investors, blah, blah, blah. And uh, little by little, we wound up not only giving them money, but we wound up actually becoming the management of the company. And so uh, as we did that, we were, we were doing a lot of crypto-related stuff. We became the biggest uh, uh, e-commerce site that accepted crypto for people buying and selling virtual items. And, and something that we'd never been able to do when we had IGE was to open the entire world to buying on our marketplace. And the reason is most e-commerce companies, uh, they redline about 40% of the world because you can't trust the credit cards from those countries because it's all fraud. Mm -hmm. so we're like, wow, we don't really need to redline anybody. And so we started to say, use Bitcoin. By the way, to us, it was like, look how easy it is. It, it took a long time for them to figure out how to use it. But once they realized hey, I cannot buy anything from this site unless I use Bitcoin. They figured out how to use Bitcoin. So, you know, the use case for Bitcoin back in 2015, 16, when people were saying, oh, it has no use. I was like, wow, you, you understand nothing about credit card chargebacks. It really is wonderful. Uh, I did a video the other day after Mark Zuckerberg completely blew his opportunity to educate Congress about the value of a stablecoin, and and basically, uh, the stablecoin is like a gift from God. There is really, it's hard to come up with any reason why a stablecoin is not a net positive for 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 consumers. Zuckerberg was not educated enough about it to really explain it, which killed me. Right, because it, it, Congress came away thinking we don't like stablecoins. When in fact, if you like consumers, if you want to open up Africa and other countries, other continents to the global payment networks, stablecoins is the way to do it. Uh, so we, we, we kind of blended virtual item trading and crypto, the benefits of both, which also led us to think, wow, what we really need is a dedicated blockchain that allows people to easily trade virtual items. And just like happened with Tether, when we first started floating the idea of WAX, people said, why do you need a dedicated blockchain? Why can't you use fill in the blank, Bitcoin, Ethereum, blah, 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 right? And so to crypto people were like, well, because the consensus mechanism is really slow or the cost is really bad and proof of work doesn't work and da, da, da. But is we all know, if you're not in crypto, you're like, they all look the same. So, uh, you know, we I remember being out there in 2017 talking to people that I thought the biggest driver of consumer usage of blockchains would be video games and uh you know people were were, were open-minded they were like wow really because they knew nothing about virtual item trading 
-hmm. I explained how big the virtual item trading market was. And they're like, wow, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. They still wondered, why can't you do this on Ethereum? I've done many, many blog posts and, and videos about, you know, stuff that any EOS person knows without yeah, really. It's like, it's it. like everyone has heard this. Like, it's like. Yeah. And the reality yeah. is we did initially, because we had an ERC-20, we tried before uh, Dan had released uh, EOS in, in June 2018. We, we were using uh, uh, a private Ethereum blockchain uh, where we were running all the nodes. And you know what? It was still slow as shit. And <laughs> it, it, it still was really hard to use. And, and EOS, when, when EOS came at such the right time because we then had moved over to the Ethereum mainnet. And then oh, a lot of you guys may not know, but in, in late June, early July, 2018, Ethereum blew up. Uh, a, a company called Fcoin, appropriately named, decided to run a promotion where they were an exchange and they said, send us uh, a deposit Ethereum on our exchange and every unique address you deposit from We'll give you like a lottery ticket for some for some uh, rewards. So, very similar to IDOS on mainnet, basically. Very similar. So uh, we went from it taking uh, ninety seconds to create an NFT on Ethereum and uh, about twenty cents to uh, to transfer it uh, to about forty dollars to create an item. <sighs> and 17 hours to transfer it. Wow. And I told the guys, the team, I said, we will be out of business in seven days if we don't just go to a pre-alpha version of EOS, which is what we did. Mm -hmm. And in seven days, we got onto uh, uh, a alpha version of Wax using DPoS. And uh, it was unbelievable. I, I, I'll never forget. You guys uh, were the first EOSIO besides the mainnet. I'm pretty sure you were the first EOSIO chain yeah. to announce yeah. because at that time we were all uh, drinking the airdrop Kool-Aid thinking like everyone was entitled to airdrops for everything on EOS. And yeah. I remember when Wax was announced, it was like, what? They have a distribution set already and they're not honoring the EOS mainnet snapshot. That's bullshit. You guys have come a long way. Now you're like uh, the most loved blockchain with all of uh, the apps moving over well, to you guys. I will guys. tell you, one of the things I have loved about EOS is, uh, and, and we've been fortunate because, as we all know in the EOS community, uh, Block One uh, made some mistakes. They neglected some of the community. We had these issues with, I want to be a block producer. You know, is it fair? And how do I become a block producer? And so much talent in the EOS ecosystem and talent that wants to like deploy and see its creations in operation. And so uh, there is today, I don't think any uh, use case in crypto that has more usage than, than blockchain gaming, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there is. I mean, I think that's the overwhelming number of dApps or blockchain games. Well, it depends so, what you uh, consider IDOS. Yeah, I don't know. The, 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 that's, that's, I'm just, I, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Uh, but yeah. that, that we can see that, uh, you know, uh, DPoS is, uh, is just, I mean, it's heads and shoulders above uh, 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 proof of work as a consensus mechanism. And, you know, when I first started to really embrace uh, what Dan was doing with, with, uh, with, with EOS, before he launched, I, I was sort of like uh, biased in the sense because we had been like, we were the second biggest uh, buyers of Ethereum in the Ethereum crowd sale. We were big believers because we had been the biggest buyers of MasterCoin and all the guys from MasterCoin created. Boy, was that bag bias you had? Yeah. And our bias was like, you know, well, Ethereum <laughs> is super, super secure. Yeah. It's Byzantine fault tolerant and blah, blah, blah. And so... I was of the view that, you know, EOS is faster, but I'm sacrificing a shit ton of security. I'll tell you, I do not believe that anymore. I mean, the fact that you can have uh, 
20 uh, uh, Byzantine nodes on Ethereum, on EOS, you, and one is not, and your chain still operates. That's super impressive. So I, uh, I, as you know, this stuff becomes, it almost becomes a religious battle. When you go to a Reddit forum where there's a bunch of Ethereum people, and they will be apoplectic about how Ethereum is more secure, Ethereum is more secure. And then, you know, people like me will go and say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, right? It's, it's not clear uh, that Ethereum is more secure. And, uh, uh, and they will just go nuts. But see, uh, I look at, and my partners and I look at blockchain from a very novel perspective. It's sad that it's novel, but it is. We look at it as operators. We operate a business on a blockchain. Who else does that? Like seriously, like almost no one actually operates a real business on a blockchain. So when we were had all of our transactions from uh, Vigo and Viral to early NFTs we developed on the Ethereum blockchain, I was like, don't lecture us about what's needed to make this work, guys, because most of you are a clown show. <laughs> You're building little like 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 Toys. projects, hobby projects. Yeah, it's like we're putting hundreds of millions of freaking dollars on this stuff. You know, we our customers expect a certain level of uh, of of operational scale, and Ethereum. Well, well, let's face it with. Um, with Ethereum's latest uh, uh, announcements about their roadmap, hey, mm -hmm. they've called uncle. They're going with proof of stake, finally, right? <laughs> but, as a, and I've written about this. Look, um, best case, uh, Ethereum proof of stake happens at the end of 2023. And I really think that's best case. I think it's 2025. I also believe that by the time, um, Casper or whatever the, uh, uh, what is it? Beacon, Beacon Chain, I think is what they call the Ethereum 2.0. By the time that is deployed, it's sort of like we designed the F-35 jet in the 1980s. It's deployed in 2010. So by the time it's deployed, it's 30-year-old tech. 30 -year -old. The, the, the way that, that Ethereum is designed, it's a proof of stake, uh, I believe will be outdated by the time it's operationally deployed. I also believe, uh, you know, they have this, this horrible conundrum of, of an installed base of dApps that probably are perfectly happy with proof of work. So what I actually think is gonna happen is it's gonna be a hard fork. I, I think very few of the dApps are gonna fork over to, are they gonna all wanna redo their, their um, uh, uh, their smart contracts? Probably not. So uh, uh, I think I, the miners are just going to have issues. Like this is their bread. You're taking away the income stream of the miners. I, I'm, some of the miners might be some of the biggest holders. So yeah, they could stake and earn, but that's no a very way. good point, by the way, because today we're pre-having for Bitcoin uh, uh, daily Bitcoin uh, miners earn 14 million 400,000, something like, call it $15 million a day in rewards, right? Mm -hmm. Or for uh, the Coinbase. What do they get in terms of uh, 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 fees, transfer fees? Uh, it's a few hundred thousand bucks, mm -hmm. right? So what's, Ethereum's in the same boat, right? Because I forget what the Ethereum inflation rate is, three and a half or 4% annually. I'm not sure. The amount that the Ethereum uh, uh, miners are getting for uh, transaction fees are just irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So, and remember, uh, there are no transactions. I mean, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but but let me put it this way: when we were testing Wax with the Ethereum, it was a private chain, but we were we were throwing a bunch of like experimental NFTs on it. We were doing like 6 million transactions a day. By the way, that, that translates to about 40 million operations, right? Because they already uses operations. <laughs> I think transactions is actually more of a, a better metric. But anyway, uh, 
Ethereum was doing a couple of hundred thousand transactions. Even today, what is it? 900,000 transactions a day. I mean, I mean, it is, uh, if you ever go to something called Blocktivity that mm -hmm. ranks blockchain projects by the number of transactions or operations, what you see, well, one thing you see first is that it's like the top list is all DPoS based chains, mm -hmm. not surprisingly, because that's the only way you get transaction volume. But then you got like Ethereum and Bitcoin there, but they're, uh, they're, they're minor amounts of transactions. So uh, you are, the, the miners today would mostly abandon those projects unless the transaction fees were much higher. Okay, but if the transaction fees are much higher, people are not gonna wanna use it mm -hmm. because alternatives like EOS are there. I don't know, therefore, well, Bitcoin will probably always stay proof of work, but, but post 2024, basically, there won't really be much more inflation. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is an unknown area. Where, what is gonna motivate these miners? What I might say to you is, we way, way, way over-subsidize security, meaning mining on both Ethereum and Bitcoin. Like 100% of the inflation goes mm -hmm. to mining, which is security. It's too much. Uh, and the, the worst part is um, the miners themselves, their margins aren't that big. So it's not like they're stacking sats here. So whenever Ethereum goes to proof of stake, that's why I say the miners might not be the biggest holders because with proof of work, you're paying electricity costs. You, you keep some of the profit, but that's where it's going. It's going poof out of the system. So you take away the, the, the um, mining uh, fees to earn Ethereum and from the gas fees. And then you're saying, okay, you earn based on how much Ethereum you're staking now. And you're like, well, I've been selling most of it. Like it yeah, just doesn't make sense true. to them. They're, they're losing power. People don't like to lose power and control. <laughs> that's been proven throughout history sure. they're gonna create disinformation campaign it's just gonna be like bitcoin cash and bitcoin it's just gonna be yeah a lot of infighting the last thing i'd say about ethereum is when ethereum was being developed uh and again we came from it from a from version like 1.0 which was mastercoin my view and i think most of the people i knew who, who were part of the crowd set was this was I don't want to be pejorative, but this was like a test net. Like Ethereum wasn't really designed to scale. It was like, let's see, see if we can put a, a, an intelligent layer on a blockchain. Let's mm -hmm. see if we can actually do what Nick Sasbo was talking about. Let's see if we can actually do smart contracts. And it, it really wasn't designed to scale. And I think what happened was, uh, and maybe I'm pay, playing psychiatrist at this point, I think um, Vitalik, got so wrapped personally around Ethereum from a, like a, a reputational standpoint that look at Vitalik and Ethereum versus Dan Larimer. So the reason I have such great respect for Dan is nobody on earth has created more operational blockchains than Dan. Nice now, it's funny, the Ethereum and the Bitcoin guys say, oh, Dan always abandons his projects. I'm like, no guys. He's doing prototypes. You don't stick with the freaking alpha version. You make a beta and then you do a full operational one. So I look at proto shares and bit shares and steam it. I look at those as like experiments in yeah. consensus mechanisms. I'd also argue that every project he left, its highest market cap it ever had was after he left it, because it was during the EOS ICO Every, everyone could have exited. If they didn't like Dan because he left, they could have exited at a so, profit. You know, he broke one tradition, which I loved. Uh, I don't know if you remember his tradition, but I think it was with ProtoShares and he went to BitShares and what did he do? People are like, you're leaving. And he said, yes, but I'm airdropping you guys who own the old token, the mm -hmm. new token. And then he did that with the next token. And the token would actually, like you said, it would go higher. Mm -hmm. We were all like, woohoo, we're going to get this new token, plus we like the old token. He broke that tradition with, uh, with EOS. I wish he had kept it. I, I uh, think it's regulations, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you could, could usually be. tell because he used to be so active on Telegram and be like unfiltered Dan, and he would, give, he would say so many things he probably shouldn't have, and a lot of stuff just got roadblocked, I, I think, by lawyers. Because sometimes people say to me, why aren't you all over Telegram? And I'm like, guys, 
have you ever like considered like the uh, all of the, the the risk elements of of saying things just like the way you might send a text message to a crowd it's like you you would have to put so many caveats mm-hmm. that it gets exhausting and so we do what most people do in companies we just issue press releases or blog posts or whatever it is i wish it wasn't the way the old days were fun in some ways but you know the industry has evolved so we're we're, we're about to about to our time limit i don't want to take up your whole night uh, we didn't talk about wax that much, but that's okay. I, I'm I'm loving the DeFi. It's about wax. We created a blockchain that would allow us to make it very easy for people to create and to buy and sell, and uh, uh, what we now call NFTs or virtual items. And that that is involves a whole bunch of stuff, but mostly it's the chain. Of course, has to be fast and low cost. That's DeFi's. The ability to interact with the chain cannot be freaking MetaMask or frankly, even Scatter. It's got to be much easier. The Wax Cloud wallet, you know, social logons. Love it. Right back and forth. It's, as you probably know, it could be better, but it's way better than the experience of a, of a Scatter or a MetaMask. And then the ability to get uh, third-party companies to then use it because it's straightforward. Uh, one thing that probably bugs EOS people and bugs me is that somehow in the broader universe, there's this sense that if I'm doing an NFT, it should be Ethereum, which uh, again, I've done blog posts and videos about this. Ethereum is terrible to create virtual items and it's terrible to trade them, mm-hmm. but it's gonna take more education and we're doing it. We go to big companies and we're like, this is why you can't do this on Ethereum guys. And hopefully that message starts to resonate. The other, the other piece is making it as, e- as easy as possible. So one of the coolest things about Wax is you got the microservices layer. So you have all of these services and APIs that are available to developers. Now you have the DAP network that developers can plug in also, all sitting on top of the Wax blockchain so that they don't have to do things like, what do you have, like a random number generator. You have an account system. Uh, yes. The Express Trade API, which I don't have any notes on my bullet point here. But, uh, but it's, like it's all you, awesome. If your team is familiar with the... Uh, Crowd is familiar with uh, uh, what uh, what Steam did for uh, for trading uh, CS:GO and other items. Mm-hmm. We kind of looked and said, "Yeah, that make it very easy to trade virtual items back and forth." So we kind of modeled it after that. Uh, uh, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants in this space, and I uh, uh, I believe that that the best, as I mentioned, the best consumer like onboarding process for crypto really is uh, NFTs, um, virtual item trading, since there's hundreds of millions of people across the world who already do that. And because we all know being a blockchain based item makes it much, uh, much safer than it would be if it were just some virtual item in a database somewhere. So um, all those things make it me confident this is gonna be uh, a way to, to mass onboard. And by the way, you know, we probably got what four hundred and fifty thousand uh, new accounts so far since we launched the uh, Wax Cloud wallet like two months ago. Uh, it took EOS like a year plus, year and a half to get to a million five accounts, uh, mm-hmm. and this is just because it's easy. And these are not like Tron uh, fake accounts, right? That's the granny test. I think the the Wax Cloud wallet. Hand your. I mean, your grandma has to know how to use a phone. Let's say that. But if she could use a smartphone, she could sign up for a WaxCon. If your grandma has a Facebook account, you share pictures with her, she could easily have a Wax Cloud account. And, and like the future of NFT. So let's end this with like some mind-blowing stuff. Like you've proven you've got like vast experience in, in stable coins and well, NFTs before they're NFTs. What's next? Like what could over the next let's give it a longer, like a five-year time horizon. Like right. what are we going to see with NFTs and, and why is Wax going to be the place to be for those NFTs? So uh, we've talked about something called DeFi, which is a way to monetize your, uh, your assets, right? Uh, we've been experimenting with doing that with real-world consumer products, creating digital twins of real-world consumer products like your your sneakers, right? And putting them in a crypto. I, I, to crypto people, it's so easy to explain. I say, uh, 
uh, we're doing tether for sneakers. They're like, oh, you know, get it. Uh, it takes about a lot longer to say that to somebody who's not familiar with crypto or tether. Uh, but what I see is with blockchain and the ability with DeFi to collateralize your assets on chain, then to leverage them on chain. Uh, now you can imagine these very valuable NFTs that you can do that with that I see those things coming together. Uh, 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 it's, uh, there's a lot to be done. We talked earlier about how complicated DeFi is, but once you've created a, a real world asset, maybe that you've tokenized or an NFT that has a lot of value because it's scarce and desirable for a game, and then you can monetize that in different ways, mm -hmm. that to me is not something you could do with traditional virtual items. And since you can't do it with traditional virtual items, it's not going to happen in the video game marketplace. It's going to happen in blockchain. And it's not going to happen with big video game items, big video game companies migrating to blockchain. This comes from my years of, as a VC. It never works that way. It's native companies that see a technology, they build it, they exploit it, and then years later, the incumbents from the old tech say, we should do this. You know, I got involved in, a, in, in, a, in internet uh, in 1995. My partners and I created the world's first consumer internet venture capital fund. It was called Idealab Capital Partners, also the first incubator. Very successful. But I saw this in spades. Our first 30 deals were, were uh, e-commerce companies. But none of those involved existing retailers or even existing mail order catalog companies. They just were like, why would we need this? It works well now, <laughs> right? Look at what happened with mobile. Uh, all the big mobile apps are natively mobile companies. Mm -hmm. And then it took a decade for non-native mobile companies. Guys, you know, the, the JP Morgans or, you know, the, the Walmarts to say, maybe we should do an app. I wish it wasn't that way because it would be great to get a head start with great mass by dropping in companies that have a lot of followers, but it's not going to be that way with video gaming or anything else in crypto. It's going to start with native companies uh, that, that just use this tech and figure out how to do it. And then the Johnny come lately's will come and eventually bring a lot more masses. Uh, and maybe they'll do that because they see, wow, this DeFi thing, this is a way for our video game items to be worth even more and get more revenue. So maybe we should adopt the blockchain. That's, that to me is like a few years out. You add AR and VR components to it, it, mm -hmm. it becomes even more exciting. Uh, I'll leave it with that. I mean, there's other things I see. What, what about, um, I was thinking about this with NFTs. So whenever you're talking ones with massive value let's say in the thousands of dollars where it would make sense yeah. like collateral back so i'm part of vigor dax so we do uh we're like trying to build a decentralized stable coin on eos there's also equilibrium on eos i mean mm -hmm. uh there's maker dow which is the most famous one so all these systems where you're collateralizing a highly liquid asset so that's the most important piece is like if you're collateralizing eos or ethereum you have all that liquidity yeah. but with nfts especially if they're rare like very rare and there's only maybe five of them how, how do you, or do you have a solution for this in the back of your mind well, of creating rare, liquidity for a rare item like that so that you can collateralize it? Well, so let's make sure. So there's, uh, in the CSGO world, uh, that's a video game for your audience that doesn't know that, uh, it has the most, uh, the most developed uh, uh, skin world, which we'll, we'll say is kind of like NFTs. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get a dragon lore from uh, 2014, with uh, stickers that represent certain uh, 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 video game championships that they went to and so forth. That could be worth 30, 40 grand, right? Now, that thing will sell within a minute or two of being listed for sale. Really? So just because it's rare and it's expensive doesn't mean it is not liquid, right? Now, when I compare this to the Ethereum-based NFTs, uh, those are like, there's no liquidity there. Mm -hmm. And the reason uh, you, uh, 
We used to give video game companies basically a cookbook. It was 18 elements that they needed to incorporate in their video game to make their, the secondary market of their items valuable because we wanted to promote this because we mm -hmm. help people trade them. Uh, and, and it came from our learnings. Uh, the the uh, Ethereum-based NFTs, probably the real-world NFTs today, are they've got two or three of those elements. And, and uh, uh, I do get annoyed when I hear people say, often VCs, say, well, I've got a, uh, you know, we, we, these NFTs are rare and they look pretty. They must be valuable. You know, that's got nothing to do with it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of underlying economic factors that drive value in an NFT or, or a virtual item. And those things have not been fully developed in crypto yet. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the closest we've come to is, is Vigo, uh, where, you know, those items uh, and viral, two NFTs we built, where, you know, you get to hundreds of millions of dollars of transaction volume. Uh, but even those, they don't, they're not, they still don't incorporate all the essential elements. So, um, uh, you know, there's a bunch of exchanges that have been built for Ethereum-based NFTs. I think those are going nowhere. Uh, they just, they, they, uh, cause the items are not worth anything and the items aren't worth anything because, uh, just being rare and pretty doesn't make a thing valuable. Uh, and we hope to start to push the other elements that will make this thing valuable. But I think even the EOS game community doesn't fully appreciate what's needed. Uh, but you are right without the liquidity that comes from a very active market that wants to acquire that NFT, mm -hmm. It, does, it is problematic to, let's say, allow people to leverage it. And then if they run into a margin call, you want to liquidate it. Well, if the market is not liquid for that, what do you do? Mm -hmm. We're thinking about those things, but they're not insurmountable. Yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud. Like, I guess if there was a counterparty involved that would maybe like a DAC or a DAO or a traditional company, like they decide like which NFTs are collateralizable <laughs> and then then it could potentially work because then if there's no liquidity like they just kind of hold the asset until there is or th there's a lot of things that could happen you know when we first did tether let me finish with this uh i had a theory and i was wrong but it seemed very logical to me so i thought that the value of tether should not be a dollar each tether was was redeemable for a dollar. But I did not think that was that, what I thought was it had a floor of a dollar because it's redeemable for a dollar. But Tether was just think about it as like a, uh, a fork of a Bitcoin, right? So mm -hmm. you get all the benefits of Bitcoin, but you also get this little package which is redeemable for a dollar. So I kind of thought, well, it doesn't have the brand of, 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 uh, of Bitcoin, but I kind of thought it should trade roughly what Litecoin trades at. It's like it's a poor man's Bitcoin, <laughs> but it's got a buck. So it should trade at Litecoin plus a dollar. And, you know, my financial markets background said to me that it's like an embedded option. It's like that's what it should trade for. And then my two partners said it will trade for a dollar, man. And I said, but you're giving them Bitcoin or Litecoin plus a dollar. So it's got the utility of Litecoin plus a dollar. So it's, a, and sure as shit, uh, it trades for a dollar. And, and, <laughs> and I decided the reason for that is uh, price discovery is amazingly intricate, difficult thing to figure out. When you first put something out there, what should the price be? If you give the consumer any hint at what it should be, they just shortcut it and say, that's what it's gonna be, man. <laughs> Fine, it's a buck, right? So um, NFTs do have this problem initially, there's not price discovery. So you are right, I think there needs to be a counterparty that, that sort of says, I'm willing to value this at X. And whatever that suggested price is, I guarantee you that's going to be the price of those items. Man, I love this conversation because it's just like my wheels are spinning. So like the game developer who creates the NFT could like set like, w w everyone in crypto is familiar with a burn. They could set up a burn contract that at the very minimum, this NFT is worth whatever you could burn it for and get a redemption on it. Five cents. You're, you're going in the right direction, I think. Yes.
So uh, th this stuff's going to happen. Like, we could be years out. We might not be. But yeah. for, for 2020, though, what can we expect from WAX? Well, I think you, what you will see is uh, after it took a long time to build this stuff, the service layer, uh, you're going to see us basically marketing the capabilities of the service layer, all those really nice things in the developer hub that you can go plug into with APIs and do stuff like very easily onboard people and so forth as prospectors did very well. Uh, you're going to see us going out to larger companies that maybe aren't crypto uh, like aware yet. And uh, hopefully we'll have some announcements around that where we're getting those types of companies to see who, who have kind of tried to do Ethereum and said, this doesn't work. And we're going and saying, you're right, it doesn't, but this does, trust us. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do is bring uh, mainstream adoption of the DPoS consensus mechanism to uh, a broader audience uh, in 2020. And uh, uh, like I said, I kind of feel like Ethereum they threw in the towel on their, you know, proof of work. They they sort of acknowledge what Dan Larimer has known, which is, uh, you know, the consensus mechanism has to be some sort of proof of stake. And uh, in order to get big, big companies, ultimately, they'll need it too. You can't tell guys, well, it's going to take about 15 minutes for this thing to resolve. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of like outward bound uh, work, proselytizing, I guess. Uh, I would like Ethereum to, do, I mean EOS to do more of that, but you know, a block one has not seemed terribly interested in that. Maybe we'll see more with uh, with voice. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interested to see uh, what they end up allowing with voice ID, like the interoperability of it, to be able to tap into that, so that you don't have to do a KYC. If all you want to know, if you're not doing banking or anything, and all you want to know is that this person's got one account. They don't really need the AML aspect of it. Like if you could tap into that voice ID, I, I hope you could do that from day one, but we'll, it'll definitely happen eventually. I do too. Yeah. All right. So I, I think it's been a little over an hour. I really, really appreciate your time, William. It was great going down all these different rabbit holes from DeFi to OG tether days to uh, NFT trading before NFT was a word before crypto was even a thing. It was really fun to have you on. I hope to have you on again. Um, how do, how do people check out Wax for, for anyone who, I guess, Wax. can't read the description? <laughs> Wax.io. Follow you guys on social media. you got a very active Telegram channel and community. So check them if out, you're developers. Doing, if you're doing a dApp and you're thinking of, uh, you know, an EOS-based dApp, it's fully compatible with Wax as well. But there are some tools that make onboarding a little easier for your customers.